Good morning, everybody. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we still our souls now before you, we pray that you, by the work of your spirit, would be stirring our affections to you and to the things of you. That we would be a people who have the right type of hunger and that our hunger would be met in the Lord Jesus. We pray that for us even now as we read your word. Amen. I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open up to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21 is found on page 244 of the Pew Bible. We are probably about two-thirds of the way through this book in this series called Who Will Be King? And we see throughout this course of the Old Testament, the coming anointed King David is in so many ways a picture of the Lord Jesus. And when you have passages in the Old Testament that find their way into the interactions of the New Testament, what happens is that we get greater clarity, even greater hope, even greater joy to see how God interacts with his people. And so as this forerunner to Jesus, David enjoys many parallels and foreshadowings with Jesus for us. And today is one of those stories where the story of David works its way into the teaching of Jesus. And as a result of it, I think we find two things. Number one, we're motivated all the more to commit our life in faith to the Lord. And number two, we find great comfort in our circumstances as we do. And so with that, I want to ask you to follow along with me in 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's a short story. It's a slightly confusing story at first blush, but we find these two realities in it. This is what it says. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? And so the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdmen. And then David said to Ahimelech, 
Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor weapons with me, because the king's business requires haste. And the priest said, to the, sword, said the sword of Goliath the Philistine, of whom you have struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Let's pause there for a moment. David is on the run for his life from King Saul. His needs were practical, and his needs were very great. He had no food and no way to defend himself. He needed bread, and he needed a sword. And the story begins with David approaching the tabernacle at Nob, where Ahimelech was the priest. And the interaction is almost awkward in its telling, because David is spinning a story. <laughs> a story to try to get what he needs. And from verse 1, we see right off the bat that something isn't quite right as the priest looks at David and he smells something fishy. He says, why are you alone and no one with you? When you're a mighty warrior like David, you're never alone. <laughs> when you are on a journey through the wilderness from town to town, you're not alone. But David is on the run. And the priest senses something isn't quite right. And his answer in response is classic. David essentially pulls a James Bond on this guy. I'm on a top secret mission. The king told me I can't tell you what I'm doing. I can't tell you where I'm going. And I can't tell you who I am meeting with. Or perhaps you saw the story a couple years ago about one of the officers in the EPA of our own federal government. The Environmental Protection Agency who skipped out of work off and on for about two and a half years. And he played the James Bond card. He told his superiors at the EPA, I really work for the CIA. They have me going here. They have me doing this. I can't tell you who I'm with or what I'm doing or where I'm going. That guy's in jail now. And we all know that this is a charade. But what is the priest supposed to do? On the outside, David appears to be alone, but he appears to be strong at face value. He has a reputation that precedes him. He is a mighty warrior. He is one who sits in the king's court. But on the inside... This guy is being torn apart. Psalm 34 is one of the psalms that David wrote following this very encounter. It is, when you read it, a psalm of great praise and adoration and very upbeat in its tone. But in it, David uses some very colorful descriptions to portray what it's like to be in this type of need. What it's like to have this type of trouble. What it's like to be completely dependent 
on something or someone other than yourself. He refers to himself in Psalm 34 as one with many fears, one with great troubles. He refers to himself as a poor man, as a young lion that has hunger and want, as a righteous one with many afflictions. His inner self is a long, long, long way away from I'm a secret agent on a secret mission. <laughs> He's strong on the outside. But on the inside, it's a different picture. And it should be. He is on the run for his life. And he has nothing. He is running for his life and he has no one except the Lord. And it's not a mistake that in David's time of need, he heads to the tabernacle. He has no one except the Lord. I wonder if you ever feel like that. I wonder if some of you might feel like that even now. You have tremendous need. The need is pressing. There is no obvious way that the need will be met. I'm not talking about wants. I'm not talking about desires for greater comfort. I'm not talking about the temptation toward luxury. I'm talking about raw, painful need. Physical needs. Emotional needs. Spiritual needs. And you have no one that can meet them except the Lord. And so David asks the priest for five loaves of bread or whatever you have on hand. <laughs> but there's a problem. The only food that the priest has on hand is referred to as holy bread. This is often referred to in the Jewish tradition as show bread or the bread of the presence. Leviticus 24 tells us what it means and what it's all about, that the priests of the tabernacle are to bake 12 loaves of bread and to set them up on a table that's covered in gold and two stacks of six loaves and either next to it or on top of it is supposed to be frankincense. And all of this is a visual reminder, a visual representation of food sacrifice to God that he provides for us and we give back to him. And the bread of the presence was, because it was an offering to God, was only to be consumed by the priests of the Lord at the end of the week when it was replaced with fresh, warm bread. And so you see the dilemma. The anointed servant of the Lord has great need for food. And there is bread that is available, but the ceremonial law prohibits him from eating such bread. And so after quizzing David about the purity of the men that he's supposed to be meeting, verse 6 tells us what happens. So the priest gave him the holy bread. 
For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. And so there's questions that arise, questions of why did the priest care about the purity of the men, in one sense wanting to honor the law, but in another sense being very quickly to discard the law by giving him the bread. Why did the priest give David the holy bread when he wasn't supposed to? We're not really told what was going through his mind. Perhaps he was afraid of David. He was a mighty warrior, has killed thousands. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was one of those priests that was just a little fast and loose with the rules. But I don't think it's either. I think the obvious answer is that the chosen one of God had great need. And he asked the priest to meet the need. <laughs> and it's that simple. When God's chosen one has need, the Lord himself gives the supply. And so what you see is that the holy bread of God becomes the daily bread for his servant. The holy bread of God becomes the daily bread for his servant. A thousand years later, Jesus refers to this fairly obscure interaction. You might remember the occurrence. It's found in Mark chapter 2. It's going to be up on the screen behind me. Jesus is walking through the field with his disciples on the Sabbath. And this is what it says. It says, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. A few simple observations. The law of the Sabbath stated that one was not to work on that day. It was a day of rest, a day of worship. And by not working, they were not allowed to harvest grain. And yet the disciples broke the law as they walked through the fields plucking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees took notice and they level an accusation against them immediately. But Jesus' response was to point them to the incident of the bread of presence. Not just as an example, but as a precedent for his own Actions, David's actions point to a principle that Jesus is getting to. For David, being God's chosen forerunner, the law was meant to serve his need, not to exacerbate it. And in the greatest of needs, David went to the Lord by going to his tabernacle. He did what he was supposed to do. He relied on the one he was supposed to rely on. He relied on the one who can meet his need. 
He showed faith in the midst of trouble by clinging to God himself. The law was meant to serve the coming of God's kingdom, not to hinder it. Likewise, the law was meant to serve the true needs of the disciples, not to exacerbate them. They didn't save up for food for the Sabbath because they were with the Lord Jesus himself. And their devotion to him and their pursuit of faithfulness to him created a unique type of need. They needed food. But they did what they were supposed to do. They relied on the one who could give to them. They showed their faith in God by clinging to the Lord Jesus who was in their very midst. The law was meant to serve the coming kingdom of the Lord, not to hinder it. And a thousand years after David eating of the showbread, Jesus claims to be the one like David, even the one greater than David, by claiming to be the Lord over the Sabbath. And there are some wonderful implications and some significant warnings found here. Here's just the first and most obvious. If God is truly the supplier of all of our needs, if everything that you need in this life comes from him, then it makes sense that part of your reliance on him would be what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6, to pray. Give us today our daily bread. And it makes sense that he would teach us what he taught us, that God knows all of the needs of even the sparrows, and he provides for them. And you are of much greater worth to God than the sparrows. The holy bread of God becomes the daily bread for his servants. But secondly, we see that if David is God's anointed to be king and to expand God's kingdom, and Jesus is God's anointed to be Lord and to be king and to expand God's kingdom, and both of them, at different stages of history, mind you, are ushering in God's rule and God's reign over the earth, and both have significant opposition to them, and both meet significant needs along the way, and both have their needs met through God's appointed means then you can be sure that no matter how significant the need or how apparent the obstacle, that there is nothing and no one that will be able to thwart the expansion of the kingdom of God on earth. Now we know that the kingdom of God is not a physical kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. That the kingdom of God is one in which expands through the hearts and minds of those who believe in King Jesus and follow him with their lives. But here's the problem. Man, you look around and it just seems like there is threats to this kingdom everywhere you turn. You, you look around at the contemporary situation and you say, how on earth could this kingdom expand among us? How could the kingdom of God possibly expand when a Chinese government regime outlaws Christianity? But the church goes underground and millions more come out 
believers in the Lord Jesus. How on earth could the kingdom of God be expanding when churches are being burned and Christians are being decapitated in North Africa? But just this last week, you see dozens of new churches recognized by governments there. How on earth could the kingdom of God be expanding when you look at the moral and sexual bankruptcy of Western Europe and even the United States that results in this free-for-all of beliefs and practices and life choices? And when you combine that with the relative wealth of these nations, it makes it a pretty clear alternative that seems to be set up that hedonism or the pursuit of your comfort and your pleasure among all else is the viable alternative to pursuing faithfulness to the king and to the kingdom. But even in the midst of such an environment, hunger abounds. spiritual hunger for something greater. Something more meaningful. Something that gives life rather than leads to death. Bread that satisfies. Or just yesterday, we celebrated the life of one of our church members, Ty Rowe, who went to be with the Lord. And he is, his life in many ways is the story of this very reality, a life that is wrought with difficulty, and yet the kingdom of God expands as he influences people. A young boy who escapes from North Korea to South Korea, and upon arriving there to experience his new freedom is arrested and assumed to be a spy, tortured and interrogated, discarded into an orphanage. And through God's providential care, he comes in contact with Christians who help him and guide him. And over the course of time, he comes to the United States for his advanced education. And he comes in contact with Christians who help him and guide him. And over the course of time, he meets his wife, who's also a Christian. Ty has now been a Christian for a number of years, and they invest themselves into a Christian family and into a local church, this local church, for many, many years, and into a community like this local community, and into people, into hundreds and hundreds of people. And the kingdom of God expands through a North Korean boy who becomes a mighty man in the Lord. In all of these instances, and any more, many, many more, we could say that the holy bread of God becomes the daily bread for his people. The apparent threats to the king and to the kingdom will be ever-present, but God will never be thwarted. The threats to the people of God will be ever before us, but God, who gives supply to David in his time of need, who gives supply to the disciples in their time of need, is the same God who gives supply to you in your time of need. 
you know that Amazon keeps track of you? Of course you do. Most of you don't care, and that's why you have that little thing in your house that talks to you that happens to be named after my daughter. <laughs> you know, when ebook owners read their Kindle or use the Kindle app, it shouldn't be surprised to you that Amazon knows what you highlight. And they keep track of it. And they store it. And not long ago, they released a list of the popular passages that were highlighted in some of the best-selling books, like The Hunger Games and the Harry Potter series and Pride and Prejudice. They also released the most highlighted passages in the Bible. I wonder what you would guess them to be. Some of you would say John 3.16. That would be a good guess. Others of you might say the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Or some would say Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But it was a much less prominent text that was highlighted the most. Because it strikes at the deep need that people have in a worried world. It's Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The holy bread of God becomes the daily bread for his servants. The story continues. We move quickly. David has been fed, and now he seeks the priest for his other major need. He needs protection. He needs a weapon. And as it so happens, there is but one weapon on hand in the tabernacle. It's a decorative piece now. It's a sign. It's a symbol of God's great power and faithfulness for his people and against those who oppose him. It's an unmistakable sword. And the last person to wield the sword was David himself. It was the sword of the mighty Philistine, Goliath. And even with food and now with a weapon, David's need was still very, very great because his enemies were closing in around him. Saul was after God's chosen, and he would have his life at nearly any cost. And so David does the unthinkable. He decides that he is going to go and hide in the place that Saul would be least likely to look for him. He wants to hide in plain sight in the town of Gath, in the kingdom of Ashish, which is a town of the Philistines. And not just any town of the Philistines, it was the town of Goliath, the Philistine. And so this is what happens. Verse 10, follow with me. It says, David rose and he fled from Saul and he went, from, went to Asius, the king of Gath. And the servants of Asius said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in their dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid. 
of Asius, the king of Gath. And so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And then Asius said to his servants, Behold, you see that this man is mad? Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David departed from there and escaped to the cave at Adullam. David walks into the land of the Philistines, into the land of Goliath, carrying Goliath's sword, expecting to be unnoticed. This is not a very good plan. He's arrested, he's taken before the king, and at this point he does the only thing he knows what to do. He pulls a rope-a-dope on them. As my four-year-old son likes to say, I'll be the rope and you be the dope. <laughs> he pretends to be insane. Like, this is one of the oldest tricks in the book. Not a very good plan. <laughs> and somehow, it works. And he's released. And the only thing that we can really make of it is, quite frankly, this. God delivered David again. <laughs> and David himself says as much. Days after, probably in the cave, writing Psalm 56, in which he says, in verse 3 and verse 13, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before, the God, before God in the light of life. The holy bread of God becomes the daily bread for his servants. When you are afraid, trust in him. The whole story seems a lot to do, a lot of drama attached around a couple loaves of bread and a sword. But it points to the greater realities of life. You have needs. Very serious needs. And God is the one who will meet your needs. And one of the greatest struggles that we have in this life is to identify our true needs from our desires, to identify the hunger that we have and how to have those needs being met because there's all kinds of access and ways in which we're tricked to thinking what our needs truly are and how they will be met. Some of us have been raised on junk food, practically and maybe even spiritually. Eugene Peterson, 30 years ago, said that one of the biggest enemies of the church is the development of uh, proliferation of programs to meet people's needs. What he meant is their felt needs. Because everyone has a hunger for God, but our tastes are so screwed up. We've been raised on junk food. So what we ask for is often wrong or twisted. And what he means by that is that when you think that your spiritual life with God is just somehow 
to meet the appetites of the moment that you have. Can I be better at this or happier in this or five steps to this? It's like treating the symptoms without actually treating the problem. And it results in this constant need for the superficial. Some of us confuse very plainly our wants and our needs. I can't count how many times I've talked to people who have been making sinful decisions, even though that they're professing Jesus as their Lord, they're deciding actively to make a decision to go a different way in life. And they almost always say the same thing. And this is what they say. Doesn't God just want me to be happy? And I think of this story of the three Edwards, which describes the life of Reynald III. Reynald was a 14th century duke in what is now the country of Belgium. He was grossly overweight, and Reynald was commonly referred to by his Latin nickname, Crassus, which means fat. And after a violent quarrel, Reynald's younger brother, Edward, led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Reynald, but he did not kill him. Instead, he built a room around Reynald, his brother, in the castle, and he promised him that he could regain his title and his property as soon as he was able to leave the room. Now, this would not have been difficult for the vast majority of people since the room had several windows and doors of normal size, and none of them were barred, and none of them were locked. But the problem was Reynald's size. To regain his freedom, Reynald would have to lose weight. But Edward knew his brother. And so each day, he sent a variety of delicious foods into the room. And instead of dieting his way out of prison, Reynald grew larger. And when Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he had a ready answer. He said, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when... He so wills. But Reynald stayed in that room for 10 years. And he was not released until Edward died in battle. And by that time, his health was so ruined that he died within a year. A prisoner of his own appetite. I wonder if you might relate, if you've ever sensed that you are a prisoner of your own appetite. The things that we want, the things that we strive for, the things that are fighting for our affections, the things that are alluring to us, the things that Satan regularly and consistently will put before us to tempt us things that will ultimately lead to our imprisonment and our death, things that might look like they would satisfy. But the things that will lead to our destruction. Because our real physical needs point us to our spiritual need. I love the way that one author puts it. She says that my hunch is that many are have a hunger for God's presence, but they don't even recognize the presence because they're waiting for something more dramatic to happen, something that they should 
think a lightning bolt from heaven or a supernatural experience. She says, my hunch is that already some are sensing something of God's presence or you wouldn't even care. And so picture yourself walking through, we'll say an outdoor fair. Looking at people, watching displays, and then suddenly you get a whiff of cinnamon. (laughs) This craving isn't something you've made up. There you were, minding your own business, and now you really crave a Molnar's cinnamon roll. (laughs) You were walking about, engaging in your day, when some drifting molecules of sugar and butter and spice collided with that susceptible patch inside of your nose, and you had a real encounter with cinnamon. Not a mental delusion, not an emotional projection, but the real thing. And what was the effect? You wanted more. Now. And if you hunger to know the presence of God, it's because you've already begun to experience the scent of his compelling delight. The holy bread of God becomes the daily bread for his servants. And you can't think too carefully about the holy bread and the daily bread without thinking of what Jesus says in John chapter 6. I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's as if Jesus is saying that those who eat of the daily bread will be sustained forever. And so David concludes, and we conclude, in Psalm 34, where David says, Upon eating the bread of presence, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The holy bread of God becomes the daily bread for his servants, and I pray it is the daily bread for you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess our great need. For some of us here today, that need is even more acute. And we ask for your supply, your provision, and for your salvation. And we know that you supply us richly through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so we put our faith in him as our daily bread. Amen.